Wake up, wake up, N.A.B. Wake up, wake up, N.A.B. We've been up since half past three. We've been up since half past three. Running, swimming all day long. Running, swimming all day long. That's what makes a tadpole strong. That's what makes a tadpole strong. Sing it who your head. Who your head. Run in there. You're listening to the podcast, Send Me. Here with you now is host, Jason Sweet. What's the count, team leader? What's the count? Down! Keep going! Hold it. Try it! Keep going! Brought to you by SOCOM Athlete. Send me. Send me. Thanks for tuning in to SOCOM Athletes Podcast, Send Me. This is your host, Jason, and today we've got a great episode for you. First, we'll start off with some exciting announcements, then give some big congratulations to some former SOCOM Athlete Hell Day students that are recently graduated from their special operations pipelines across all four branches of the United States military. After that, we're going to get into an extremely important discussion, get into some wisdom tips and advice, and then I'm going to give you guys a couple stories First, I'm going to tell you guys my greatest challenge in the Air Force PJ pipeline, which is one of the hardest special operations pipelines in the world over two years in length. And then I'm going to tell you guys a story. Some of you guys may not know that my dad and I actually served together as PJs on the same team at the same time. And from what we've heard, no other father and son in the special operations community have done this, serving together on the same team at the same time. If you want to go back to one of our first episodes, I actually had the honor of interviewing my dad. Check out the episode. Towards the end of this episode, I'm going to tell a story about my dad and I doing a halo jump together with Chief Super Sanchez, who was also on our podcast towards the beginning back in one of the 2020-2021 episodes. Go give it a listen as well. First, Let's give a huge congratulations to some former SOCOM athlete students that enlisted and commissioned into the United States military after coming through our training program, doing our workouts, being members of our group chats, networking with other like-minded individuals in their area to help prepare for special operations in their journey. These guys are now graduated special operators. And I wanted to give a huge shout out to my man Garrett for inviting me to the graduation to watch you graduate with SFQC class 333 up in Fort Bragg or Fort Liberty, whatever you want to call it right now, North Carolina on his special day to earn his Green Beret. It was an absolute honor. One of the youngest guys in his class, a local from down here in the Navarre, Florida area. Surf with him multiple times multiple Hell Day student, worked out with our Northwest Florida training group, just an awesome, humble individual. I'm super proud of him and excited for his journey as he does his language training and gets on out to his permanent duty station. Next, my man, Carlos and Tim, thank you for inviting me to the PJ graduation class 2302. It's always an honor to go to these PJ class graduations. This is the third class in a row that we've had multiple SOCOM athlete students. It's very humbling, guys, that this program attracts the types of individuals that later go on and graduate special operations training. As I stated earlier, the PJ pipeline is no joke. 
there's combat, diving, mountaineering, shooting, tactics, medicine, all kinds of challenges and things that you could potentially fail and get set back or booted out of the pipeline for. So the guys that finally make it and graduate at this point are just the cream of the crop and the type of guys that you want coming after you on the worst day of your life to rescue you. These things we do that others may live. Congratulations, gentlemen. A huge shout out to my two dudes that graduated Bud's class 359. Gonna save your name because you guys haven't got the tridents yet. Don't want you to get smoked, but you guys know who you are. I'm super proud of you guys, both of you. To become a Navy SEAL, you gotta get through BUDS. And BUDS is known as one of the hardest challenges in the entire world out of anything. Congratulations, gentlemen, for getting through BUDS. I'm super proud of you, class 359 grads. Next, congratulations to my man Tristan and my man Mason for graduating Marine Recon Training. You guys are combat divers. You've graduated basic reconnaissance course. You guys aren't operational yet, but you've graduated the tough stuff. You're officially Recon Marines, combat divers, continuing your journey. I'm super proud of you guys. Thank you for including me in your journey. Next, a huge shout out to my man Jacob, graduating RASP class five of 2023. For those of you that don't know what RASP is, that is the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. In order to earn your tan beret, officially become an Army Ranger with the 75th Ranger Regiment. Jacob was a member of our Arizona group from when I started SOCOM Athlete in 2017. We're talking about six years. And he constantly, constantly had these roadblocks, injuries, whatever it may be. And finally, he decided to just send it in the army with an option 40 contract, graduated RASP, and he is exactly where he wants to be in the 75th Ranger Regiment. Congratulations, Jacob. Super proud of you, man. Lastly, wanted to give a shout out to my man Hayden and my man Jordan for graduating Air Force Combat Dive School. You guys have been a huge part of this program. It's been a pleasure to be your mentor, and I look forward to continuing to be here along your journey. You got a long way to go in the pipeline, but you're taking care of business. Combat Dive School is one of the hardest schools in the United States military, so congratulations, gents. Let's get into some announcements next. First, the Denver Hell Day event coming up on October 7th is full. We've got a record number of registrants, 75. We've got over 65 students already checked in, ready to rock and roll. This is going to be the largest SOCOM athlete event in the history of the program. I am pumped to get out there and work with you guys in Denver. Keep in mind, the Hell Day events are only 108 bucks. We keep the cost low for you guys to give you the opportunity to come out and train for these events. Now, some of our events are partnered with these special forces units with the Florida and Colorado Army National Guard. So these particular events are free to attend. And if you want to go to the full weekend, the coupon code takes $108.99 off the full weekend. So these free events, we have huge numbers. These hell days are absolutely incredible. So if you want to attend these, they fill up quick. Don't miss out. Get registered as quick as possible. Our next hell day event that's sponsored is going to be in Miami on November 11th. Check the SOCOM Athlete website. Check the SOCOM Athlete Instagram for that announcement. We have a coupon code to attend that event. It's 320SFG. Again, that's 320SF. G for 320 Special Forces Group, who are our partners that have made this possible for you guys to attend. This event is November 11th, Veterans Day, down in Miami, so don't miss out on a free Hell Day event. Get some world-class training, build memories of a lifetime, and get equipped for what you need to be successful in the Special Operations Pipeline. 
We're also conducting a Hell Day event on October 21st, Saturday in Virginia Beach, Virginia. That's the farthest north and east that we conduct these events, so don't miss out if you're up there in the northeast on this Virginia Hell Day event. We've got an awesome crew of instructors lined up for you, a couple active duty Navy SEALs on the East Coast SEAL teams, a former SOCOM athlete student that's now a MARSOC operator, and a few other incredible instructors. I'll be up there myself as well, and I hope to see you in Virginia Beach this Saturday, October 21st for the big Hell Day event. Lastly, I'm very honored, humbled, and excited to announce that my wife Jessica and I just had our second son, Levi. We now have a family of four. We have an almost two-year-old, my son JJ, and an almost two-month-old, my son Levi. What an absolute blessing. Fatherhood is amazing, and I'm very grateful for God's perfect timing that we are doing this at this phase in our life. It's very challenging. And it is a great responsibility. It takes up a lot of time if you want to do it the right way. So thank you to our listeners out there for your patience as I've been busting my butt to figure out the balance of life as we've brought in two new family members to the sweet family. All right, let's get right into it. Question for you. How many people live in the United States? Okay, how many, how many citizens, United States citizens live here right now? If you guessed around 335 million, you are correct. Next question for you. About how many people are actively serving in the United States military? So we're talking active duty, National Guard, Reserve. If you guessed around 2 million total, you are correct. All right. I've got another question for you on our pop quiz. What percentage of the United States population 335 million, roughly, is serving in the United States military, which is 2 million. So what's 2 million of 335 million? If you guessed 0.6% of the population, you are correct. How many special operators are in the United States military? Well, this is an easy one. If you've got 2 million military members across all the branches, Guard, Reserve, Active Duty, We've got 20,000 roughly special operators. 20,000 of 2 million is 1%. So roughly 1% of the United States military is special operators. What's 20,000 of 335 million? So what's the percentage of United States citizens that live here in the United States that are serving as special operators right now in the United States military. Well, listeners, it is 0.006% of the U.S. population. As you know, as our listeners, SOCOM Athlete exists to equip individuals for success before they go into special operations pipelines. And we have a variety of awesome listeners. Most of you are training to go into special operations, whether you're in the military now or you haven't gone into the military yet. Some of you are serving right now as special operators. Some of you have retired. So for our listeners out there that are pursuing a career in U.S. special operations, you are seeking to become one of the 0.006%. We are going to hold you to the highest standard because you are seeking to be the best. So let's talk about the steps of going into the pipeline. 
Obviously, you got to get into the military first, but there's some steps that can be the most challenging obstacle for you to overcome in order to even get into the military and get a contract. So let's rewind a little bit further. What career fields are special operations in each branch? An easy quiz for you. What does SOCOM stand for? The name of our company. How do we get that name? Or US SOCOM. If you said Special Operations Command, you are absolutely correct. For those not in the military yet, there are so many terms in the military that they have to break it down into acronyms. So you will learn 1 million different acronyms in your time in the military. So U.S. SOCOM, United States Special Operations Command. There are a variety of career fields in each branch that fall under this SOCOM umbrella. SOCOM, by the way, is headquartered at MacDill Air Force Base, which is located over in Tampa, Florida. We actually got to do our Tampa Hell Day event there in MacDill Air Force Base. Super cool doing our event at the location that inspired the name of this company, SOCOM Athlete. So what are some of the career fields that fall under that SOCOM umbrella? Well, in the Army, the primary two, and there's some questionable career fields, right? But the primary two are your Army Rangers and your Green Berets, Special Forces. Over in the Air Force, you have, of course, PJs, pararescue men, pararescue jumpers, whatever you'd like to refer to them as. We have Combat Controllers, CCT. We have Special Reconnaissance, the newly created career field that was formerly known as SAL-T, Special Operations Weather Technicians. And then you have TAC-P, Tactical Air Control Party. And they were recently integrated into the Air Force's Special Warfare Program, which of course falls under the AFSOC umbrella. So to kind of rewind a little bit, in the Army, their special operations umbrella that falls under SOCOM is called ARSOF, Army Special Operations Forces. In the Air Force, it's called AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command. So again, those four career fields are under AFSOC, PJCCT, SR, and TAGP. Going over to the Naval Special Warfare side, NSW. While one may argue there could be a career field or two added to this list, the primary career fields in NSW are going to be your SEAL team members, your SWIC dudes, that's Special Warfare Combatant Craft crewmen, and of course your Navy EOD members. And those guys are bad to the bone. They are not the same as other EOD operators in the other branches of the military. So you've got those three primary career fields in NSW, Naval Special Warfare. And then going over to the Marines, you've got MARSOC, Marine Special Operations Command. And those guys are known as CSO, Critical Skill Operators, kind of like an ODA, Operational Detachment Alpha on a Special Forces team. We have kind of this argument uh, out there about whether or not Marine Recon is special operations or not. And here's how I will sum it up to you. Force Recon Marines, Recon Marines, whatever you'd like to refer to them as, they are special operations capable. They have all of the special operations level training and more than most of the career fields that I've previously mentioned. However, they do not fall under SOCOM when it comes to a chain of command. They fall under conventional Marine chain of command. 
So with that being said, they are kind of dependent on what the infantry is doing in order for them to get the bulk of their missions. However, they do some great things in their MEUs, that's Marine Expeditionary Units overseas. You guys can do some research on that or listen to some of our previous podcasts on that. So we can also go into Coast Guard, MSRT, and, and talk about that, but we're going to focus on those four branches, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps for now. Okay, and I'm not going to get into the exact route to get into selection for all of these career fields, but we're going to go into kind of the basics of this. And, and let me tell you, before we even go into the route, did you know that 30% of individuals that go talk to a recruiter, start their process to get a special operations contract in one of these branches. Did you know that 30% of individuals disqualify medically when they go to MEPS? What is MEPS? What is MEPS? I warned you earlier about the military acronyms. MEPS stands for Military Entrance Processing Stations. And that is where you will get screened and evaluated on a variety such as hearing, vision, mobility, max bench press. I'm just kidding about the max bench press. But MEPS also goes into your medical background, such as any illegal drug use, any ADHD medication, which can be a big disqualifier. They're going to check out any surgeries that you had in the past, any metal in your body or whatever it may be. And like I said, over 30% of the individuals that are pursuing a special operations contract will disqualify during this medical screener. Now, just because you disqualify at MEPS does not mean that your journey is over. Who y'all never quit, right? You are now going to do what's called applying for a waiver. Now, what is a waiver? A waiver is a case for you. It's you building this document that is going to go up the chain of command. As we say in the military, what is a chain of command? It is the rank system on how problems are solved in the military. So for example, chain of command may be from you to your recruiter, from your recruiter to his boss, who may be the local squadron chief. And then from the chief up to the commander, and then from the commander up to the group commander. And then maybe up there, there's somebody who evaluates all of these waivers and gives it the final green light or the red light after everyone through the chain of command has looked through it and kind of done their part, right? So because it's got to go to multiple people and multiple desks to get approval after you've completed this paperwork packet, this case for you, it's going to take a long time. Okay. What is a medical waiver? Well, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but let's use an example. Let's say that you got an ACL reconstruction surgery in high school uh, because of an injury that you suffered while playing football and your knee is 100% good to go. You haven't had any issues. You can ruck, you can swim, you can lift weights, you can do it all. Maybe you got disqualified at MEPS because of this surgery. And whatever career field you're trying to go into, maybe it's getting an SO contract, which is a SEAL operator contract, NSW in the Navy. Maybe you got disqualified. And now you've got to put together a waiver to build your case. Well, how do you do that? 
you go to civilian doctors, non-military doctors, your personal care doc, and you ask for a referral to an orthopedic surgeon or a physical therapist or whoever it may be, and you build this case for you, you get your mobility evaluated, you get x-rays on your knee, you get a doctor to put together a note for you and basically put his or her name on it and sign on it that says that based on his or her evaluations, you seem fit for duty. Okay, that's the the first step. And then you'll need character references, letters of recommendation. You'll need to do even better than all of the other recruits on your initial fitness test evaluations, PST, PFT, whatever branch you're going through so that your recruiter wants to actually do this extra work for you. Now, listen to me. This is very important. You've got to understand that a recruiter doesn't get paid any extra money for working extra hard for you on the phone or taking on extra recruits on the phone or answering more emails, okay? They're gonna get paid the same amount of money whether they get 100 people in or 10 people in. Now, if they get 100 people in, yeah, they may get promoted earlier or get some type of leadership award or formal recognition, okay? But they're gonna get paid the same amount of money. Now, why do I tell you that? Because you have to understand that this recruiter doesn't wake up in the morning and put you first in his or her life. They have so many other things on their plate. So don't take it personally if you deal with denial or you don't get a hold of them right away or whatever it may be, okay? Be polite, be respectful, but be aggressive and take initiative when it comes to dealing with recruiters. And check it out. If you don't get done what you need done, move on to another recruiter. Go to another branch. You can achieve ultimately what you want to achieve from any branch. That's being an operator, doing all the cool stuff, serving your country at the highest level, having these awesome relationships with elite teammates, going and deploying, serving in combat, doing all that. You can do that from all of the career fields that I mentioned earlier. So just because maybe you didn't get your SEAL contract or your PJ contract doesn't mean that you just go walk away from this, okay? If you're pursuing this for the right reasons, then you shouldn't let denial turn you down from going and pursuing this with a different branch. Okay, back to it. So let's say that you you got accepted through MEPS. You, you did your thing, maybe you got a medical waiver or maybe you're good to go and, and you passed, okay? Now you gotta pass an ASVAB. Most of you know what the ASVAB is. You've probably taken it yourself already, but for those that don't, I'll read it to you straight off the front and center homepage of their website. It stands for the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. What is a battery? Well, it's just another weird military term. The military loves to take a word and make it fancy. Another word for an evaluation. Now, this is a multi-aptitude battery that measures developed abilities and helps predict future academic and occupational success in the military. It is administered annually to more than 1 million military applicants, high school, and post-secondary students. So you got to take the ASFAB. Now, as far as the scores on the ASFAB goes, every career field has a different requirement for what your score needs to be. Now, I'm not going to get into all the subtest acronyms of the ASFAB, but I'll give you guys one example of what you need to get on a score to qualify. So for example, to earn a SEAL contract, you need to have a combined GS plus MC plus EL minimum score of one 
70. Well, what's G-S-M-C-E-L? Again, these are subtest acronyms. So G-S stands for general science, which is your knowledge of physical and biological sciences. M-C is mechanical comprehension. And this is a big one that a lot of people struggle with, especially nowadays with how much people are doing electronics and, and screen time. And that's knowledge of mechanical and physical properties. And then of course, EL is electronics information, knowledge of electricity and electronics. And people can also struggle with that knowledge of electricity. So you need a combined score of 170 or there's two other options of combined scores. Again, I'm not going to get into those. You guys can do your research on the ASVAB. So to rewind, we've talked about MEPS. We've talked about the ASVAB. Now what's the third one? What I should have done in the beginning is broken it down into three steps to get a special operations contract. So we'll pretend like I said that in the beginning of this whole breakdown. Okay, so we've gone over step one, which is MEPS. We've gone over step two, which is the ASVAB. So let's go over step three, and that is to pass your entry level fitness test. Now, each branch has a different name for their fitness test. The Army has the APFT, the CPFT, the RPFT. Their initial fitness test is different than everyone else's. As far as the Air Force goes, they've changed the name of it recently from the PASS test, which is what it was called when I went through back in 2008. Whoa, what a long time ago. Now it's called the IFT, initial fitness test. And then, of course, on the Navy, you have the PST. Now, the Air Force's and the Navy's entry-level fitness test is almost identical. It's a 1.5-mile run, max push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, and then a 500-meter swim evaluation for the Air Force, 500-yard swim evaluation for the Navy. Now, the Air Force Special Warfare entry standards are unique in that you have to complete two by 25-yard underwater swims as well in order to earn a contract. Yes, you get rest in between those swims. The reason the Air Force does this is because if you want to be PJCCTSR, this does not include TAG-P, you have to go through combat dive school in the very beginning of your pipeline after you make it through selection, get selected. And combat dive school is one of the hardest schools in the military. As we talked about earlier, anybody can learn how to run, lift, even swim, run around in the mountains with heavy weight on their back and a rucksack, whatever it may be. But when it comes to having a variety of equipment and you're essentially breathing underwater at night, 40 feet below, navigating to a certain point from out in the ocean to a beach, only the best of the best is capable of accomplishing these tasks. My dad actually went through combat dive school in 1987. I graduated combat dive school in 2009. It was one of the best times of my life. One of the most challenging schools I've ever been to as well. Dive physics is way harder than you would think. Physics is one of the challenging topics in school, of course. Dive physics is no joke. Everything about dive school is challenging. The military takes away the fun of scuba diving. Trust me, don't think that you're going to be hanging out on a shipwreck looking at coral playing with fish. You're going to be combat diving and everything that comes with that. So back to these entry-level fitness evaluations. For the Army, as you guys may know, the two-mile distance is what they evaluate on their entry standards. They took sit-ups out of it. They evaluate push-ups, evaluate pull-ups. And if you're looking to get a contract to be a Green Beret through Army National Guard Special Forces, 18 X-ray contract, Rep 63 contractor, or what those called, 
you got to be able to do a five-mile ruck march as well and a five-mile run. So these are some of the standards that you're looking at in order to get into the military, right? And, and again, I could go into all of the career fields. They're all a little bit different across the four branches, Marine Corps, Army, Navy, Air Force, but that's kind of how it's done. So you've got your big three, medical, academics, fitness, and it should be without saying that you're going to get a background check. And of course, you're going to go through an integrity evaluation. So you'll answer a variety of questions about your past. So when you analyze the big three background checks, personal past, I've talked to some recruiting battalion commanders that have given me this data. Roughly 70% of the individuals that first contact a recruiting command disqualify in one of those three or four ways that we mentioned. So in order to even get your foot in the door to get a contract, to go to basic training with a guarantee to give it your shot at a tryout, which we call selection, BUDS, SFAS, ANS, etc., you're looking at like a, a 75 roughly percent chance of an in individual failing one of those steps. So if you're listening to this podcast and you are young, everything that you do matters. Tread lightly. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't go hard and send it in everything you do. It means that you critically analyze all of the decisions you make knowing that these decisions are going to echo into your future and could affect your ability to pursue your hopes and your dreams in life. So make sure that you are performing some of these character traits and these behaviors that we look for in special operations in your life now. Start implementing them now. Having integrity, being professional, being courteous to people, being the best or trying to be the best at everything that you do, giving it your best effort, caring about things, being reliable, dependent, being on time, never complaining, working super hard when others are sleeping, whatever it may be, I could keep going on. Start doing these things in your life now and you'll stay away from trouble. Generally speaking, the busier you are, the better your grandparents have an old saying, idle time is the devil's workshop. That means whenever you don't have something going on, that's usually when you get into trouble. Stay busy and productive and you'll stay on the path. All right, enough of that fatherly wisdom. I mean, what do you guys expect? I'm a father of two now, right? Big old family of four. I got to drop that Papa sweet wisdom. Okay, so let's say you got your contract. Congratulations. You get to step foot in the door. What are these contracts? Well, I'll discuss a few across the branches. So we'll go over Navy, Army, and Air Force. Sorry, Marines. We're just going to talk about those three real quick. Okay. So for the Air Force, if you want to go into active duty Air Force and become a PJ, a CCT, SR, TACP, whatever it may be, you actually have to go in with this open general type of contract called the SWOE. Special Warfare Operator Enlistment. And what that means is that you don't necessarily get guaranteed one of those jobs. You're guaranteed to get put in the, quote, draft of special warfare candidates. Hopefully you get the job you want. To increase your chances of getting the job you want, you've got to complete ANS, that's assessment and selection, the selection course for Air Force Special Warfare trainings, okay? You got to complete the course, top of your class, top performer, great teammate, whatever it may be, 
and you will get your job of preference, okay? But all the middle of the road guys, you're gonna go where the Air Force needs you based on their current manning needs, your personality, your performance, kind of those three things together, all right? So that's the Air Force SWOE contract. Uh, I'm not gonna get into it, but if you wanna bypass that and be guaranteed a PJ contract, for example, there are quite a few pararescue guard and reserve units out there. And if you go through those units, you're guaranteed a PJ contract. They will send you to the pipeline, same pipeline, but you're guaranteed a PJ contract because you're gonna be stationed at that unit after you finish, okay? And again, we can discuss that another time. There's ways around these things, okay? National Guard Special Forces, awesome option. You get to pick your MOS after you complete Special Forces Assessment Selection. Check some of our earlier episodes for more details on that. Okay, over in the Army, you also got your, your Option 40 contract, okay? And that's a, a guarantee to go to RASP, Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. So when do you go to RASP? Well, first you gotta go through Army Basic Training and then you do your OSUT, which is essentially being out in the wilderness with a lot of gear, limited rations, limited sleep, moving around, learning how to do basic patrolling, basic soldiering, all that good stuff. And then eventually you'll go to pre-RASP, which is a total kick in the butt before you go to RASP. And then finishing RASP phase one and phase two of that course, you'll finally graduate and get your tan beret. Okay. It's not a lengthy pipeline. If you want to be an army ranger in the 75th ranger regiment, a lot of the formal training that you'll receive is after you graduate RASP, even airborne. You won't even go to that school until after RASP versus in the 18 x-ray pipeline, you'll go to airborne and SOP C, which is the special operations prep course. And then you'll go to SFAS. Okay. Again, the, the air force pipelines for special warfare, You'll do airborne, halo, combat, dive, sear, all of this stuff in your pipeline before you even get your beret, which is definitely a positive about the Air Force Special Warfare Pipeline. It makes it long, but you get to do all the cool stuff that everybody else wished that they had. Okay, going into the Navy. The SO contract is the special warfare operator contract, SEAL operator, whatever you like to refer to it as. It's got multiple names in past history. This is a contract for you to go in to become a SEAL, SWIC, you've got Navy EOD, whatever it may be. Uh, you go in with the actual job, okay? So it's not like the Air Force where you go in, open general, do the same selection course, and then get your job handed to you. Um, this is different. You'll go in with the SEAL contract. You'll go in with the SWIC contract, the Navy EOD contract, whatever it may be, okay? Earning these contracts. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit and talk about earning a contract. Let's say that you got your medical down, you got your physical fitness test down, you're working on your ASVAB, you haven't taken it yet, whatever it may be. Let's say you haven't quite got your contract. What are you gonna do while you're working with your recruiter waiting to ship out to basic training, whether you have your contract or not. Again, what are you going to do while you're working with your recruiter before you've shipped out to basic training, whether you've earned your contract or not? Well, for the Air Force and the Navy, the Army does not have this, the Marine Corps does not have this, but for the Air Force and the Navy, you'll do what's called the Delayed Entry Program, the DEP. And the DEP is where you're going to have essentially this training system 
where you've got to take fitness tests, show up to workouts with other recruits that are going through the process in other phases than you. All of you are going to work out together. Now on the Navy side, you're going to have a variety of active duty Naval Special Warfare operators that are kind of running these workouts and administering your fitness tests to you alongside your recruiters. In the Air Force, you're going to have a company called T3I, and they've got a variety of retired special operators, and they'll bring in some active duty guys, and, and again, you'll do these workouts with them and your recruiter, as well as getting administered on your fitness tests. So these workouts, there's limitations on what they can do, but essentially, you'll be able to do things like treading water, swimming, doing some push-ups, going on some runs, maybe doing some team building. It's nothing crazy, but it's some good training to kind of keep you guys focused and, and keep you around while the military is, is working your system. Now, here's something that's very important. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're planning on pursuing a career in special operations and you plan to go into the Navy or the Air Force and go into the DEP, the delayed entry program, this is very important. Write this down. You have to swear in first in order to officially get accepted into the delayed entry program. Again, you have to swear in first. So that's a big commitment to swear in first before you actually get your contract. What happens if you swear in and you get an injury and maybe you never meet the standards for the run? Does that mean that you're going to get cycled into some lesser job that you didn't want. It's happened a lot to guys that have come through this program, something along those lines during the delayed entry program. So I'm not trying to scare you. What I'm trying to do is give you a warning that when you do go talk to your recruiter, make sure you've got your stuff together. Make sure you're squared away. As we say in the military, you've got your ducks in the row. What I mean by that is you shouldn't go to your recruiter just when you first passed your 1.5 mile run evaluation for the first time or the two mile run evaluation for the first time. Yup, I'm ready to go be a Green Beret. Yup, ready to go be a PJ. I'm running a 10-20 on my 1.5 mile run. Absolutely not. You should be running three miles in less than 21 minutes. You should be running that 1.5 mile in nine minutes, 30 seconds or less. You should be able to go out and run a six miler in around 44 or 45 minutes. You should be able to go out and swim 1500 meters in 34 minutes or less. You should be able to do a 50 yard underwater before you go in to get a PJ contract. Your recruiter isn't going to require you to do all those things because nobody would be able to do it. They wouldn't get any recruits. Okay, we're dealing with a recruiting crisis. So the standards have constantly lowered on these initial fitness tests. They've not gotten harder. So you have to be proactive and take the initiative to be as physically fit as possible and hold yourself to the highest standards before you talk to your recruiter. Not only is that going to help you not be a liability, but your recruiter is going to be excited to work with you when you're a physical stud who is not high maintenance. So the big question now is, what are the recommended numbers for our fitness tests and other things like water confidence, ruck marching, weightlifting, et cetera, before we go talk to our recruiter? Well, that is a very detailed question that requires a detailed answer that's going to be different for each branch. We have this information spread out all over our former podcast episodes. Go back and give them a listen. We discuss these at our Hell Day events and our development courses, and we also have this information on our online prep programs. What I'll tell you is this, to give you a quick cliff note version. 
do research on what the final evaluation criteria is on each of these career fields and be able to accomplish either that number or close to that number. For example, in a variety of these career fields, combat control, army rangers, SFAS, whatever it may be, the 12 mile ruck march is evaluated. Now I'm not telling you to go out and be able to ruck 12 miles all the time, but what I am asking you is, can you put 50 plus pounds on your back and go walk through challenging terrain for 12 miles? Do you think the military is just gonna get you ready for that? How much weight can you deadlift? Can you take a 200 plus pound person and throw them up on your shoulders and do a fireman's carry across a 100 yard field? Are you capable of that physically? Do you weigh enough? Do you have enough muscle to carry your load with your teammates during selection when you're carrying a heavy litter or an apparatus or a boat or a log? Can you pull your weight? Can you add value? When it comes to the pool, do you go right into the deep end and sink like a rock? Can you tread water and hold your own safely and efficiently in the open water? Have you ever been in open water? Have you ever done something like surfing or spearfishing or scuba diving? Do you have any confidence in the water? Do you know different strokes besides the freestyle or just the breaststroke? Okay, I could keep going, but these are all types of things that need to be evaluated before you go talk to a recruiter. Because like I said earlier, the recruiter isn't getting evaluated on how many people they got into the pipeline to get paid more money. They're getting the same amount of money whether or not they're a top performer or a bottom performer. So you've got to take care of yourself. And recruiters are hit or miss. There are a lot of great recruiters that are passionate about their job, straight shooters that have integrity and are going to take good care of you. Other recruiters are just there on an assignment. They're not into it. They don't want to mess up and that's about it. Okay, so take care of yourself. Hopefully you find yourself a great recruiter because they are out there. Okay, next let's talk about the officer side of things. If you are planning on commissioning into the military, your route will be quite a bit different from the enlisted side. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. Long story short, you're going to have to drop a packet, as they say, and then you'll have to go through some sort of physical screener that's usually a condensed version of selection. For example, to become a Navy SEAL officer, you have to go through SOAS, that SEAL Officer Assessment and Selection. This is a five-day course that is modeled like BUDS, and the idea is that if you make it through this course in good standing and get picked up, you're going to be successful at BUDS because the last thing the Navy needs is their SEAL officer candidates quitting or falling out during the course. When that happens, a lot of enlisted guys will follow. So you got to have your leaders as some of the top physical studs out there. On the Air Force side of the house, you have something called phase two and phase two has changed over the years, but it's essentially the same as SOAS. You have a condensed version of ANS, assessment and selection, that's going to expose these candidates to the same type of things that they'll see in the selection course. So you'll have to obviously go through that condensed selection, but you'll also need things like letters of recommendation. You'll have to go through officer training school or ROTC or one of the military academies first before you earn a contract. If you want to be an 18 alpha that's a Green Beret officer, Army Special Forces. You actually have to do time as a conventional officer first. And there's a variety of different requirements as you guys are picking up, as you're listening for different jobs across the branches. So if you want to be an officer, there's a different path in, but it's all the same. 
generally, once you actually get in, you're gonna go through selection together. And after selection, you're gonna go through a very similar pipeline. Officers are going to do some different training throughout the pipeline, go to some different courses, same with enlisted, but it's gonna be very similar. So hopefully that answers some questions as far as the officer side. We'll do an episode in the future on the advantages and disadvantages of officer and versus enlisted and why you should probably choose one versus the other based on your situation and what you're looking to get out of your career. Let's move forward. You got your contract. Congratulations. You're shipping on out to basic training. Officers, obviously, you're not going to go to this basic training. This doesn't apply to you. We'll pick up afterwards. You're heading on out to basic training. Basic training is different in all four branches, as you guys have probably heard. You've got the Marine Corps, who does what they do. Basic infantry training in the Marine Corps. Air Force, who does what they do. You've got the Army. You've got the Navy. Everyone has a slightly different basic training, okay? And the idea in basic training is to teach you how to follow orders. Very, very basic orders and perform very simple tasks as instructed. So you've got to learn how to listen to orders, follow orders, and execute appropriately. So you'll do a lot of things that seem a bit tedious, such as making your bed perfectly based on a set of instructions and a set of standards and criteria. Marching is a big formation and doing these facing movements and having to do it perfectly as a unit. Obviously, your fitness tests and executing the proper form on your calisthenics. You'll do things like memorizing heritage from the branch that you're in, creeds, things like that. You'll also learn basic soldiering, basic shooting, patrolling, how to use mop gear and gas masks to protect against chemical and biological weapons. You'll learn and be evaluated on history and heritage of the branch that you're going in. So basic training is not the most challenging thing, okay? It's to develop very basic skills, hence the name basic training. After basic training, you finally graduated, you got a uniform with your name on it, maybe one or two ribbons, maybe a, a little piece of flair, you got your shiny shoes, right? You know how to set up your gig line, which is your button to your belt to your zipper, pocket area, right? You, you got all that lined up. You're, you're good to go. You got a good shave on. You know how to put your cover on properly. Congratulations. You're a soldier, airman, seaman, marine. You told all your friends at home, you're basically Rambo now. You're ready to go to war. Start stacking bodies and serving your country. hoo But guess what? You don't have a specialty yet. You don't have a skill that you can give as an asset to the military and serve your country. Your job is to pass selection, get selected. So what happens after basic training? In the past, when I went through, oh, Papa Sweet, your podcast host, I enlisted in 2008. I went through basic military training. Graduated that in December of 2008. Went through PJ Indoc, our selection course, 10 and a half weeks, two months roughly, in 2009. Okay, graduated that course, and I ended up graduating pararescue training April 18th of 2011. It's 2023 now. Things have changed. In 2017, and even before, the 18 X-ray program has been doing this for a while, but 
In 2017, the Navy and the Air Force in particular started implementing what we call prep courses. And you guys know the names have changed of these courses, whether you want to call it Bud's Prep in the Navy or in the Air Force side of the house, you can call it SWIC now, Special Warfare Candidate Course. It used to be called the Battlefield Airman Prep Course when it first started. I'm not going to go into detail about all the different special operations prep courses across the branches, but something like the special operations prep course, which is where you go when you get an 18 x-ray contract. This is right before SFAS, Special Forces Assessment Selection. This prep course is designed to strengthen you physically and help introduce you to some of the concepts and exercises as well as the critical problem solving that you may see at SFAS. So most of these prep courses are eight weeks in length. You're not going to have the opportunity to make a transformation at these prep courses. That's not what they're designed to do. They're not long enough for that. The Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, they don't have time for that. But what they will do, and the reason why I told you about when I went through, these prep courses will help you get back into shape, if not good shape, better than before, before you go through selection. When I went through, we didn't have these prep courses. You went straight from basic training to selection. Now, selection generally was designed a little bit different. So in the beginning, maybe the first week or so, it would be more of a crawl phase as far as a little bit more introductory type of things than now because there was no prep course. But now, obviously, there's prep courses and often you guys will get some time to train and do some additional training during basic training, during basic military training, BMT, BCT. When I went through, we didn't actually get that. So there were a lot of guys who were complaining that they went into the military in great shape, then they spent X amount of weeks in basic training, marching around, folding t-shirts, making beds, and learning about heritage and history, and not a lot of time swimming, running, etc. So now there's really no excuse. You go in in great shape, you always wanna be way above the standards. You go to basic training, go ahead and expect to lose some of your ability in basic training, okay? It's a very busy schedule. You're not gonna have the opportunity to go and eat all of the nutrients that you do right now and get your protein shakes in and get your warm up at the pool and your swim and your underwater session and your treading water and your poolside flutter kicks and then go hit the gym and take a pre-workout and do some Olympic lifting and then a mobility session, all the things that you do now, you're not gonna be able to, to do that during basic training, okay? So a lot of people get out of shape. The prep course, in my opinion, is that answer to help guys get back into shape before selection. So don't expect it to solve all of your problems, but you will learn a lot of valuable things, even some skills in these prep courses. And they're usually somewhere around eight weeks. Okay, so we're walking through this. We've talked about the whole entry process, ASFAB, physical standards, getting through the fitness test, getting through MEPS, getting a contract, going through basic training for you officer candidates out there, putting in a good packet and getting through your pre-selection course, your screener, whatever it may be called. And now we've gone through the prep course. Well, what's going to happen after the prep course, there's a few career fields out there where you're gonna actually go through airborne before you go through selection. Now, 
the 18 X-ray program, the Green Beret Special Forces, for those of you guys that aren't tracking and, and may not be planning to go into the Army, you'll go through airborne school before you actually go through selection. So airborne school, I'll tell you guys a little bit about it. It is not the hardest thing in the world. It is 15 days. They've been doing it since World War II. It's almost 100 years old, teaching the exact same method. The first week, you're going to learn how to fall for an entire week. It's called a PLF, okay? Parachute landing fall. The second week, you may start falling from towers, from zip lines, and things like that. You're going to learn how to fall some more with a little bit of added intensity. You may even run around the road a little bit and do some Jody's C-130 rolling down the strip. Airborne daddy going to take a little trip. Mission top secret, destination unknown. Don't even know if we're coming home. Week three of Airborne, you're going to do some jumps, five jumps. Four of them are going to be, I believe, without equipment. You may do three of them slick. The fourth one, I believe, may be with equipment. The fifth one is going to be with equipment at night, okay? You got to do a night jump, okay? Now, there may be some minor changes. I know probably hundreds of you guys that are listening right now are either recently graduated from airborne school or whatever it may be, but that's how it was when I went through. It's always been, you do five jumps there. I know that that's not going to change. So whenever you actually get to your team's funny story, uh, somebody who just went through airborne school and like never jumps again, believe it or not, there's a ton of them that go through airborne school. You got like lieutenant colonels who are getting a re-enlistment bonus and this is part of their package to go to airborne school and all they do is do computer work all day. You'll have like ROTC people. You got slots for recon Marines, 82nd Airborne guys, guys that just graduated TACP pipeline, uh, RASP, you name it. There's all kinds of slots for Airborne. So there's a lot of people that do use this skill of parachuting, basic parachuting, static line jumping as it is, but there's a lot of people that, that don't, okay? So anyways, we call the people that never jump again and only have five jumps for the rest of their career, we call them five jump chumps. So for you listeners out there, if you're a five jump chump or you know a five jump chump who's telling everyone that they're a halo jumping sky god, tell them to drop down and start knocking out push-ups immediately. So as far as airborne school goes, when you show up, the instructors, we call them black hats. They wear black hats and you refer to them as Sergeant Airborne. Sergeant Airborne will refer to you as legs meaning you never jumped out of a plane before, you're a leg. And for you junior enlisted, they'll take some pokes at you and call you a nasty leg, a stinky leg, a dirty leg, you name it. But you're all legs until you become an airborne qualified basic parachutist five jump chump. Okay, so that's airborne school, 15 days of your life. You'll always remember it. For those of you that are going Air Force Special Warfare, You'll go to airborne school after you get done with selection, pre-dive, and combat dive school. Airborne school is after that. For those of you guys that are going Recon Marine, MARSOC, you guys will actually go to airborne school after you finish your selection courses as well. ANS, BRC, guys who graduate RASP with the 75th Ranger Regiment. You'll go to airborne school right after you earn your beret. If you want to be TAC-P, you'll also go to airborne school right after you earn your beret. If you're going Navy SEAL, SWIC, etc., the Navy actually has their own static line jump school. And if you guys don't know what I'm talking about when I say static line, 
these jumps that you do at airborne school, your parachute is hooked up to a static line. So the apex, which is the very center of your canopy, is hooked up to a static line. And that static line, you clip in to a metal cable in the aircraft. When it's time for you to jump out, after you've stood up, hooked up, shuffled to the door, you'll jump right out and count to four. Keep those feet and knees together. Keep your reserve ripcord covered up. And eventually, because you clip that static line in there, you're falling out of the plane, it'll just rip that parachute right out. This is a round parachute. And you may have been asking yourself when listening earlier, why do you spend a week learning how to fall and doing PLF, parachute landing falls, at Airborne? Well, because on these round chutes, you actually cannot stand up the landings. Did you know that all airborne soldiers during World War II, now, whatever it may be, in these round parachutes, you actually crash land? You do not stand up your landings. It is called a PLF parachute landing fall. And that's what's so great about becoming a halo jumper, which only the few, the proud, can say that we've done, is we stand up landings. We jump from 10,000 feet, 20,000 feet, whatever it may be, free fall through the air, pull our own parachute at a designated altitude because we're monitoring our altitude via an altimeter, and then steer the canopy in full controllability based on the windage onto the DZ. That's a halo jump where you're canopy piloting an elliptical canopy versus an airborne jump, static line jump, you're piloting a round canopy. Okay. So that's the largest difference between the two. Okay. Halo is later on in the pipeline for air force special warfare candidates, as well as seal students, everybody else. You don't go to halo until after your pipeline. If ever, there's just not a lot of guys that go to halo. By the way, halo school was the best time of my life. I went to the Navy freefall school out there with the SEAL students and SQT out there in San Diego, Otay Lakes, July timeframe of 2010, one of the best times of my life, just getting paid to jump out of an airplane 25 times. Well, I actually jumped out 26 times. I had to rehack my first jump. I'll tell you that story another time. Or maybe some of you guys that have heard me on other podcasts telling my story have heard about my first Halo jump. But getting back on track, we were talking about the prep courses and how you are essentially getting your body into this baseline shape before you go to selection. Let me tell you that there's actually a lot of people that don't make it through the prep courses. Whether it be them not making the physical fitness standards or quitting during the course or just having any other type of issue, injuries, there's a lot of guys that don't make it through the prep course. You would be surprised at how many guys are screened out before you even go to selection. So let's rewind a little bit. Only 30% of the people that even try this will make it through MEPS. And then you've got the physical standards. You've got the background checks. You've got the ASVAB. So you're looking at maybe another 20%. So maybe 50% of the individuals that pursue this will actually get a contract. Now you've finished basic training or your pre-screener, your, your selection course condensed for you officer candidates. You've gone through the prep course. Some of you have gone through airborne. Now it's time to actually go through selection. Now, what exactly is selection? This is a tryout. This is your opportunity to showcase your skill set and your physical and mental ability 
to see if you have what it takes to become a United States special operator. Keep in mind, the United States military is the most powerful military the world has ever seen. And you want to become the tip of the spear. So when it comes to selection, this is your opportunity to show the instructors and your teammates why they can trust you on the battlefield. Now, we've mentioned a lot of these courses already. BUDS, SFAS, ANS for both the Air Force Special Warfare Program and MARSOC, both called ANS, RASP, etc. These courses are designed to screen you, to put you through a variety of physical and mental challenges to see if you have what it takes to be a special operator and perform safely, quickly, and efficiently on the battlefield. This is not sports. This is not some type of challenge. This is the real deal. When I went through the pararescue indoctrination course, also known as PJ Indoc, this is the same course my dad went through. Traditionally, was always the pararescue selection course. Now, of course, the Air Force Special Warfare Program does the ANS course, a combined assessment and selection. But when I went through the PJNDOC course, there was about a 90 to 95% attrition rate. That means nine to 95, 90 to 95 guys out of a class of 100 were not going to make it. In the SEAL program, BUDS, the attrition rate is anywhere between 70 and 90% as well. Assessment and selection in MARSOC, you're looking at between 60 and 70. Special Forces assessment selection, roughly 60 to 75%. So if we go back to just our percentages of 50% of the individuals that even try to get a contract don't make it, and then you've got roughly a 75% attrition rate, you're looking at out of 100 guys that try to go to a recruiter, by the time selection is finished, you've got about 10 to 12 guys left. So to generalize this, we've walked through the math from the guys who start the journey with the recruiter to those that finish selection across the branches. Generally, you're looking at a 90% attrition rate. That means that Nine out of 10 of the guys who even start with the recruiter, get their foot in the door. First steps, do not make it. Pretty humbling, isn't it? If you're pursuing one of these career fields, I hope you're listening to this podcast while you are training hard, working harder than everyone else, because that's what it takes to be the best of the best and to be that 10%. So back to selection. We've done... 50 plus episodes on this podcast. In almost every episode, we get into some topics or training tips or stories about selection. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time discussing selection or telling stories about selection here. This entire podcast is all about selection. But what I do want to talk about is how to get selected. And I'll go over kind of the three main selection courses like I've been doing to discuss how individuals are able to successfully complete the course and get selected. What does it mean to get selected? It means that you officially earned your contract of whatever the career field that you're desiring to go in is. And you will progress on with the specialty training that's required in that career field. We call that the pipeline. Once you go through the pipeline and complete the pipeline, you will get your beret or your trident or whatever it may be that distinguishes you as a special operator in that particular career field. 
After that, you may do some additional training and then you'll go to your permanent duty station and start getting ready to do missions. So rewind. What is getting selected? It's officially getting your contract, earning the rite of passage to progress forward to start doing the fun stuff, tactics, mountaineering, shooting, diving, jumping, medicine, radios, etc. How do you get selected? Well, first of all, you got to finish the course. You cannot quit. You cannot get injured and medically withdraw from the course. There's plenty of people, tons of our students, myself, a lot of other individuals have faced minor injuries and some major major injuries while going through selection and still push through. Because as you guys know, sometimes you would just rather do anything than have to go through that again. So props to you guys that got recycled and had to go through selection multiple times. I know there's a lot of you out there and a lot of you guys will have to do that. But the biggest thing in order to get selected is to finish the course first. Next, you have standards. Typically in selection, this involves physical fitness standards, but you also have academics. For example, in BUDS phase two, when you get into your diving, you're going to have dive physics. And if you can't pass dive physics, you're not going to meet the standard and you're going to get recycled. Enough recycles, you're not going to be able to graduate BUDS and become a SEAL, right? And that's the case for all of the different career fields. You're going to have some academic standards as well. Typically, they're not super challenging. It's the physical standards, as you know, that will drive the attrition during selection. So you got to meet the standards. Maybe it's the day one physical fitness test, or maybe it's the four mile beach run two months into the course, or maybe it's the final 1500 yard swim or final 50 meter underwater, whatever it may be. The challenging aspect of selection isn't just getting through the beat down in the gauntlet. It's also meeting those physical fitness standards. These physical fitness standards can involve everything from an obstacle course to a 12-mile ruck march to an open water swim, whatever it may be, you've got to be able to meet the standards. Number three is going to be your personality. Think about this. If you were the only person on earth, there was nobody else out there, you wouldn't have a personality. A personality is entirely dependent on how you interact with others and how you are, listen to this, perceived by others doesn't matter what you thought or what you meant to say or what you meant to do. It's all about how you are perceived by others and how your actions affect your teammates. So in order to get selected in almost all of these selection courses that we've mentioned, you have to be able to get a good peer evaluation. You have to be assessed by the instructor staff and the algorithm that they use to pick up selectees as somebody that they can work with, somebody that can be trusted with the type of equipment and missions that special operators go on and can be a reliable teammate. So again, this is a tryout. This is a job interview whenever you go to selection. And this is very important mentally is from a mindset perspective to understand your job at that point is to graduate selection and get selected. That's your job. That's what the military has paid you to do and has contracted you to do. So part of your job requirement in order to get selected is to be a great teammate, be a servant, serve your teammates. But that doesn't mean that it's your job to get somebody else their contract. Keep in mind, you have to take care of yourself, not just so that you can take care of others, but so that you can get your 
contract. Okay. You can't be a great Navy SEAL unless you get through selection first. You can't be a great pararescue jumper and save lives someday unless you first get through ANS and get selected and picked for the job you want. And let me tell you, the way you get treated by the instructors, also known as cadre during selection, is not nice. They will crush you. There's a lot of hazing that goes on, and this is good hazing. Obviously, there's not nearly as much as there used to be back in the day, but there's a lot of hazing that goes on. There's a lot of things that go on that aren't fair, that don't make sense, that are way harder than you could have ever imagined, but you have to go through that. And often you'll realize that during selection, the big obstacle that you have to get past is the instructors. It's almost like at times it's you versus the instructors. They're creating this challenge for you. They're creating the timeline for you. They're creating the standards and requirements and letting you know what you have to do in order to survive. They're telling you how much sleep you get to have. They're giving you your equipment, your rations, etc. So that's really a, one way of looking at it is that in order to get through selection, you have to be able to get through the instructors. And a great way to be able to do that is to be great at following orders focus, have attention to detail. And like we talked about earlier during basic training, you got to be able to follow orders. Stay humble. Don't show body language. Instructors hate that. Suffer in silence. Never be a gray man where you're sitting in the back, not being an asset to the team. Always be up there in front so you can make yourself known, but stay quiet. Don't show emotion. Add value. I say make yourself known because this is a job interview. This is a tryout. You have to highlight yourself. Now, highlighting yourself means that you are showing others yourself in a positive way versus, I like to use the term spotlighting. Spotlighting is negative. Spotlighting would be like, hey, you just, let's say, uh, escaped from jail and you, you got a spotlight on you, all right? They're going to get you. So let's look at spotlighting as being negative. You're the one guy that left your rucksack back in the tree line and the whole team has to stop and wait for you to go back and the instructors are all out there hanging out by the truck, shooting it up, hanging out, doing their thing and it just so happens to be right where your rucksack is. Boom, you just highlighted yourself in a negative way. Now they all know who you are. That's called spotlighting, right? So let's make sure to highlight ourselves in selection instead of spotlighting. Good to go? All right. Let's say you finished selection, secured your contract, you got selected, congratulations. This is big news. You got the rite of passage. What's next? Well, we're gonna continue that in our next episode. But first, I promised you guys a couple stories. The single-handedly hardest challenge and my personal greatest failure in the PJ pipeline was no doubt during the medical portion. Our medical phase of the PJ Pipeline is about six months long. You go through the EMT basic course and then have to take the EMT national registry test. And then you go through the EMT paramedic course, have to take the EMT paramedic national registry test, which is one of the harder tests that I've ever taken. This course also required a couple months of clinical rotations, riding in ambulances, doing lead medic work in there, all the skills, being at fire departments, being in operating rooms in the hospital, working with doctors, emergency room, pediatric emergency room, neonatal ICU, you guys name it. But what was really the challenge for me was passing the EMT paramedic national registry test. Now, keep in mind, for those of you guys that know my story, 
I played a year of college baseball under a scholarship, and then I enlisted into the Air Force to be a PJ following in my dad's footsteps. So I didn't really do anything prior to the PJ pipeline in the respect of prep or uh, maybe a medical course or learning how to work ropes and knot tying and carabiners and mountaineering tactics, survival stuff. I didn't do any of that before going in. So not only did I not do that, but I wasn't a very good student in high school. I did the bare minimum so that I could go to an NCAA school and play baseball on a scholarship. And even at GCU playing baseball, I didn't really work that hard as a student to get A's or, or B's. I was more of like a C and, and B kind of guy. Baseball was my ticket out. Obviously, you guys know how my story panned out. Baseball ended up not being where God led me. But regardless, now I'm in the PJ pipeline and I've kind of used my physical ability to get myself to where I'm at. And now I've got to focus by sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day learning all of this medicine, and ultimately studying for the EMT paramedic national registry test, which is an infamously challenging test. The way the test works is that it has sections. One of the sections is medicine. The other is trauma. The other may be operations. And if you fail just one section, you fail the whole test. It doesn't matter if you crushed all the other sections to where you actually passed the exam in the long run. You got to pass all the sections. And then the most challenging part about the exam is that it keeps getting harder and harder as you answer the questions right. And if you were to get a question wrong after getting a series of questions correct, it will reset you down to a lower level. It's complicating and it was the hardest thing that I'd ever done. I actually failed it the first time. And I had to see all of my teammates that some of them I went through basic training with and PJN doc with and airborne school, all of them advance while I got set back. Now, I didn't have to do the whole paramedic thing again, but I got set back to what they called the island. And it's where you spend a month just studying for this test and then you get to rehack this exam five weeks later. So I got put on the island to take the exam the second time. And what I really learned how to do is get comfortable being uncomfortable in the classroom. Yeah, I can get comfortable being uncomfortable for things that I'm a little bit better at and things that I train for and things that are challenging for me that I enjoy, like water confidence, swimming, running, ruck marching, lifting weights, PT, whatever it is, I'll crush that. But when it came to being in the classroom and focusing, listening, paying attention, not burning any calories, not moving around, sitting in one place for a long time, taking notes, going back and reading the chapters, comprehending information, I wasn't good at that yet. I hadn't developed that part of my brain or that willpower and mindset. So what did I do? I took that EMT paramedic national registry test for the second time. And I remember feeling like I knew a lot of the answers. But going back through and carefully reading the question again and actually changing my answer quite a bit. Guess what happened? I failed the EMT paramedic national registry test a second time. You only get three tries. So this is my last try. I'm back on the island. I have to sit in a classroom for eight hours a day for an entire month. Now, this is what the Air Force is paying me to do. It's my job, Roger. But I'm not enjoying this. I'm not having a good time. But by this time, I had practiced my test-taking skills so much and had reread a lot of the textbook and had quizzed myself and done additional research and watched videos that 
I felt fairly confident on the information and I got some great advice from somebody that crushed the test, Chris Peterson. His advice was, dude, just go with the answer that you feel is right and don't change your answer. So I went with his advice. Didn't really drink a lot of caffeine at the time. I drank a Red Bull before the test, was on fire, went in there, sped right through it, chose my first answer, finished like first or second in the, in the whole exam room. And I never finished exams first. And I'm just like, dude, I must've failed that. Like it gave me the most amount of questions. Like I got like 120 questions or 150 or whatever it was. And rumor had it, like if you got the max amount of questions, you either failed it or, or barely passed it. Right. So here I am kind of second guessing myself and, and I'll never forget about 48 hours later, I logged on the EMT website and, and there it there it was Jason Sweet EMT paramedic I passed the examination and let me tell you the discipline and the study habits that I learned in those brutal eight weeks that I spent on the island helped me to later on go to the University of Arizona and earn a bachelor's degree in biochemistry one of the hardest and most challenging degrees at all universities if I can do it you can do it and looking back on it what really pushed me to perform to that level is that I only had one more chance. My job was on the line. Some of you guys need that level of pressure and need that kind of kick in the butt so that you can open up your mind and open up your ability to that next level of performance. Growing up, there was a phrase that my dad would use. I can't is the brother of I don't want to. I'm going to say that again. I can't is the brother of I don't want to. So a lot of times we realize that the things that we think we're not good at, we're only good at because we don't want to put in the work to get better at them or we don't want to fix the problem. It's not that we truly can't do it. Speaking of my dad, I promised you guys a story. So I won't go over the whole background. You guys can listen to the episode where I interviewed him, but he re-enlisted when he was 40 years old after a 19-year pause in pararescue. He didn't have to go through selection again, but he did have to go through the EMT paramedic course that I mentioned earlier because PJs back in the day weren't EMT paramedics. They did all kinds of medicine and things like that. And we do a lot of additional medicine beyond EMT paramedic, by the way. I just didn't get into it and I didn't discuss the other aspects of the PJ pipeline. But he had to go through that course again, as well as a couple other courses And my dad and I end up getting stationed at the same team at the same time. A PJ team in Tucson, Arizona, 306 Rescue Squadron. So the Air Force had to write all of these new regulations because this had never been done before. And one of the regulations that they wrote is that dad and I are not allowed to fly in military aircraft together. So I don't know if you guys have seen like Saving Private Ryan or heard some of these stories Back in World War II in the Vietnam War, there were whole families that were killed together in an aircraft crash or during the same battle. Maybe three, four brothers were all killed. Uh, Saving Private Ryan, for example, the movie is is kind of written about that. So the military wants to prevent that type of thing from from happening. So my dad and I weren't allowed to to do a variety of high-risk training exercises together at the same time. We weren't allowed to deploy at the same time either. One of the activities we were not authorized to do together 
was flying in military aircraft, right? So we weren't able to, to jump together. Well, Chief Sanchez, Chief Super Sanchez, for those of you guys who have heard my story, that was the guy that the Lord led me to to get me into pararescue and to start this whole process for me. He's PJ Chief on Instagram, one of my greatest friends and mentors. He's a huge part of this program. Coming up as an instructor in Denver. Check him out on our episode, one of the first episodes we recorded, as well as our most downloaded episode. So Chief Sanchez decides to take my dad and I out to Skydive, Arizona, in a little town called Eloy. And at Skydive, Arizona, they have civilian aircraft. So he got us some military parachutes off the record, took us during a workday, but off the record during a workday, so, so we're still getting paid, this is training, Together, we go up, all three of us, to Skydive, Arizona, and as we're going up to the to the airplane, Chief says, hey, Mo, Jason, I got something I want you guys to know. This is my last jump. I'm retiring. So not only is this definitely the first ever father-son work halo jump together as special operators, now we get to have this experience together with Chief Super Sanchez, the guy who my dad connected me with to get me into pararescue and get me out of a really tough, challenging situation in my life and start a new life. I'm super grateful for memories like that. I'll never forget that jump, man, just flying through the sky in Arizona for about 60 seconds with Chief Sanchez and my dad pulling that parachute, man. We landed way off DZ, by the way. What's up with that jump master? I'm just kidding. We probably drifted all over the place trying to dock up and speed star during free fall. I hope you as our listeners out there have the opportunity to feel what it's like to do a halo jump. I'm not talking about a tandem jump while you're strapped to somebody. I'm talking about you exiting the aircraft on your own, flying through the air, having that altitude awareness, pulling your own parachute, locating the drop zone, steering towards the drop zone and safely landing your parachute on your own two feet standing up. There's no feeling like it. Hey, check it out. We have got some new hoodies available on the website. We've got SOCOM Athlete font on the front. We've got the SOCOM Athlete logo on the back. These hoodies are bad to the bone. Hop on the SOCOM Athlete website, support us, get yourself a hoodie. The fall season is upon us. We've also got some brand new performance shorts in. These are quick dry shorts. They've got a drawstring. They're thin. They are awesome. Style is great. They fit great. Check out these new shorts also available on the SOCOM Athlete website. To our listeners out there, I had a great time getting back on here with you today. We're going to be doing this more often in the future, getting back into the swing of things. We're going to continue on with the topics discussed on this episode in our next episode with the part two. We'll get into what is the pipeline like? What's your day-to-day like? What's it like in between schools? We talked a little bit about Airborne today. We'll talk about SEER, Halo, small unit tactics, mountaineering, all of these courses that you may go through in your pipeline. So stay tuned in for our next episode. Hope to see you at one of our upcoming Hell Day events. And please consider going onto the SOCOM Athlete website and supporting us by picking up some of our apparel. Thanks again for tuning in to SOCOM Athletes Podcast. Send me. This is your host, Jason. We are out. I want to be a SEAL team member. I want to be a SEAL team member. I want to swim the deep blue sea. I want to swim the deep blue sea. I want to live a life of danger. I want to live a life of danger.
Pick up the swimpins, run with me. Pick up 